Oh, yay. Oh, yay. This is SCOTUS Talk, a nonpartisan podcast about the Supreme Court for lawyers and non-lawyers alike. Brought to you by SCOTUS Blog. Welcome to SCOTUS Talk. I'm Amy Howe. Thanks for joining us. The first three argument sessions for the Supreme Court's 2022-2023 term are now in the books. So with the next arguments, not until January, we thought this might be a good time to take a quick look back at the first three sessions, which were, of course, the first three sessions with Justice Ketanji Brown-Jackson on the bench. So joining me to discuss the term so far is SCOTUS Blog's editor, James Ramoser. He's also the author of the case studies column for the National Journal. James, thanks for joining us. Thanks for bringing me back on the pod, Amy. Always happy to be here. So let's, I guess, from the 35,000 foot level, were there any surprises to you in the first three sessions? I'm not sure there have been, there's been anything that's really surprised me so far this term. I would say as far as the cases have gone, the blockbuster cases, the ideologically salient and politically salient cases have all tended to seem to go the way we expected in oral arguments. Um, I would say maybe there are a couple of things that I'm not sure would call that I would call surprises, but at least you know are, are somewhat noteworthy and maybe were not completely expected. I mean, one minor thing is that as we're recording this on December 12th, the court hasn't issued any opinions yet. Um, and so you, you, that's typically a little late for them to start issuing opinions. But then again, I don't, I guess we don't have Ruth Bader Ginsburg on the court anymore who just used to churn out opinions really, really quickly. Um, and uh, so, you know, as we're recording this, we don't really know when the decisions are going to start, start dropping. So I suppose that's, that's a bit, of, that's a bit surprising. I would say another thing that is noteworthy is that we haven't heard anything from the court about the leak investigation of the Dobbs opinion. Again, I'm not necessarily surprised that we haven't heard anything from a court that is reluctant to be transparent about these sorts of issues. But on the other hand, the investigation has been going on for, for what, six, six months or so now. And there, there had been some reports over the summer that you know, maybe the court might issue some kind of report or findings, but mom is the word and there's, there's no sign that we're gonna get any update on that soon. Wait, you know, even from the justices themselves and some of their public comments, it doesn't sound, at least from what they've said, that they know that much about the leak investigation. Yeah, it's very odd. And so, um, Amy, remind me, didn't Gorsuch or wasn't there one justice who said over the summer that there would be a report being issued at some point? That is how I remember it as well as Justice Gorsuch. And then I think, you know, was it Justice Kagan maybe who also yeah. sort of referenced the investigation, but you know, didn't didn't actually say much about it. Yeah, it's 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 very odd. It's it's like com- a complete black box. I, I mean, Amy, do you think there's any chance that we'll just never hear the court say anything else about it? I do because you know the longer it takes, and you know, obviously, I have zero point zero idea what's going on behind the scenes. But the longer it takes, seems to me to raise the real prospect that they may never know. And it's hard to write a report about who leaked it if they never find out. And it's difficult to find a leaker. I mean, if, 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 if a leaker is careful enough to cover their tracks, 
it, it can be quite difficult to, to identify, you know, a person in that in that situation. So yeah, they, they might just, you know, it's, it's possible that whatever investigation they're doing behind the scenes may have just petered out without any conclusive evidence. I mean, so the leak investigation, the, the leak happened at the beginning of May. You know, one thing to keep in mind is that many people think that it might have been a law clerk and there's debate about which side of the ideological aisle the, 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 the law clerk may have been on. But either way, either side of the aisle, that person is, the law clerk's are no longer in the Supreme Court's employment. So the court doesn't have much power over them at, mm. at this point. Yeah, that's a that's a that's a great point. That's a that's a that's a great point. Um there's not that, a lot that, of incentives to cooperate. <laughs> right. Right. And then the I mean the other thing that sort of has been on my mind is, you know, if if the person wasn't a clerk or you know a court staff member, but what what if the investigation points to some evidence that the leaker was a either a justice him or herself or someone very close to a justice, like for example a spouse or other family member of a justice, and there's obviously there's speculation about that. Would the court be willing to make that public if if that were the case? It would certainly be highly embarrassing to the court. I completely agree. One theory that I've heard is that there may have been a justice who didn't intend to leak it to the media, but maybe even just shared a draft of the opinion with someone who then, not necessarily with the justice's permission, leaked it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, again, that's another scenario, particularly with the allegations about the leak in the Hobby Lobby case that the justices you know, may not want that to become public. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. I, I wouldn't be surprised if, uh, if, if, if we just, if the court just decides never to say another thing about it publicly, one way or the other. Because, you know, I feel like there, there are things that happen and they never say anything about them publicly and they kind of fade away. I don't think that this is going to fade away, that, that we are going to stop asking about it. But it, it, nevertheless, we may never know. Yeah, that's right. I mean, one thing that I'll be looking at is the Chief Justice's annual report, which comes out every year on New Year's Eve. You know, And not that I expect him to address the, the Dobbs leak or, or, or the, the New York Times story about the, the Hobby Lobby leak, but certainly there have been swirling calls for broad-based ethics reform at the Supreme Court and Congress for members of the public and from commentators. And, um, you know, it, it will be interesting to see whether the chief uh, feels the need to address those calls in his, in his end of the year report. Oh, I'm going to be waiting on pins and needles, you know, partly because I have no real social life. And so, you know, it's at six <laughs> o'clock on New Year's Eve. I can sit around and wait for it to be publicly released. <laughs> but also because, as you know, you may remember last year, it was, you know, maybe more to do with changes to the court in the sense that that was in perhaps in response to the presidential commission, you know, the possibility of imposing term limits or expanding the court. But I think also a little bit with regards to ethics rules, the 
takeaway from the chief's report last year was Congress stand back because we can do this ourselves. And here we are a year later and we still haven't heard anything about the Supreme Court proposing its own ethics rules. Yeah. Well, like you, I'll be waiting. Uh, I'll be waiting on pins and needles on New Year's Eve as well. I mean, nothing like burying, nothing like burying the news, right? Re releasing, you know, the, the the report from the Chief Justice at, at six o'clock on New Year's Eve. I mean, it's just, it's there's no need for them to do that. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know why. It's, it's 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 very surreal. Yeah, I mean, there's like the you know the Friday afternoon before the holiday weekend, but six p.m. on New Year's Eve really yeah. is peak peak burying the news. So let's talk a little bit about Justice Katanji Brown Jackson. Do we know anything about her now that we've seen her in action in three argument sessions that we didn't know before? I think there are a few things we know like a little bit more. Um, I'm not sure we learned anything especially new, but we had we have, we have confirmation about what we probably already expected. And, you know, Amy, we've talked about this before, I think the last time, you know, I was on the pod, you know, we talked about her active and quite forceful participation in oral arguments, you know, in, in her first few weeks, you know, uh, sitting on the bench and hearing arguments. And, you know, I think that's certainly continued throughout the first three months of the term. Um, she's been quite a vocal participant and, you know, really a, a, a hardball question her and really has teamed up with, with Kagan and, and Sotomayor uh, in some of the most divisive cases the court has, has heard so far. You know, one thing we heard early on in the argument in Merrill versus Milligan was, you know, her attempt to kind of harness principles of originalism um, from the left. And so in the Merrill case, she, you know, voiced the, the view that the original meaning of the 14th Amendment was in some sense um, not a colorblind, uh, was not meant to make the Constitution colorblind, but, you know, on the contrary, was in some sense an affirmative action amendment. And I, I think we heard, you know, that theme emerge in other cases as well, like the, the Harvard and UNC affirmative action arguments. I'm really looking forward to uh, when the court starts releasing opinions, then we start, you know, seeing some of Justice Jackson's writings, um, because I don't think we have much of a sense yet of, you know, her jurisprudential or, or, or doctrinal approach, you know, until we, uh, we actually start seeing some more um, merits opinions. But she has written two opinions dissenting from the denial of stays in death penalty cases. And you've written about those opinions. Tell us a little bit more about it. Yeah, that's, that's, that's right, Amy. Um, you know, although we haven't seen any marriage opinions from the court yet, uh, of course, justices can write, you know, dissents on the shadow docket or dissents from, from cert denials. And we've seen two of those so far from Jackson and both have been dissents in death penalty cases. And, you know, obviously it's a sample size of only two, but I do think there's something significant to the fact that Jackson chose both of those cases to, to write formally. She didn't have to write anything in, in, in either case, but she chose to explain her views. And, 
in the, the second case, uh, she actually issued sort of a, what I've called like a post hoc dissent. So I think it was like on a, on a Tuesday night, a few weeks ago, the court green lighted, uh, you know, an execution to proceed. Sotomayor and Jackson noted their dissent on that order as is standard um, on these, these orders without saying anything more. And then a day later, Jackson, you know, went out of her way to issue a short dissent explaining her views, which we see very rarely. And frankly, I think justices ought to do more because I think we should hear more from the justices about their reasoning in shadow docket cases. But in any event, I think that, you know, it shows that these death penalty cases, you know, are a real concern for her. You know, capital cases make up a big part of the Supreme Court's docket and often an overlooked part of the Supreme Court's docket because they do often come through on the shadow docket and don't get hurt from oral argument. So I just think it's it's interesting. I think it's something to to continue to watch for and, and see if you know Justice Jackson continues to speak up in death penalty cases, particularly because she has succeeded Stephen Breyer, who in many ways was the court's most vocal critic of the death penalty in the sense that he repeatedly and explicitly questioned whether capital punishment is constitutional under the Eighth Amendment. That's not something that we've seen explicitly from Sotomayor or Kagan. And so it'll be interesting to see whether Jackson, who of course herself is a former public defender, will sort of fill that role that that Breyer left behind. Yeah, that's a great point. I want to stay on the topic of the shadow docket, because as you mentioned, one of the justices' responses when people talk about the shadow docket and criticize the court for not providing more explanation is what Jackson did in that one death penalty case. And it's happened occasionally, but but very rarely, which is to issue an opinion after the fact. Obviously, in a death penalty case, it doesn't provide a lot of explanation for the person who has already been executed, but does provide reasoning for other courts and litigants to follow. Um, another sort of tactic that the court has adopted in the past couple of terms, I, I think in response to the criticism of the shadow docket, is to take up the cases and fast track them. And that's what they did in the Biden administration student loan debt relief cases. Those cases will now be argued in February. As we are recording this, the Supreme Court has just added a second student loan case to the docket for late February. But the shadow docket has also been pretty active. You know, it continues to be quite active. We've had the January 6th investigation, the request for cell phone records for Arizona's Republican Party chair. We've had Donald Trump's tax returns. We've, we've had all of these capital cases. Do we think that this is, is sort of here to stay, a, a brisk shadow docket? I think at least for the foreseeable future, it seems to be, yes. I mean, you know, I don't, I don't know. I mean, you, you're more of an expert than I am in this, but it did seem like I think if you look at the numbers, you know, the emergency requests on the shadow docket and the court's willingness to grant those requests really skyrocketed during the Trump administration. And it doesn't seem to have abated since then. 
you know, I think both the federal government and private litigants have realized that there's an opportunity here to, you know, to, to seek and, and sometimes obtain, you know, emergency relief on the shadow docket, whereas, you know, in the past, you know, these cases would have been allowed to sort of percolate, you know, in, in the lower courts, uh, you know, before the justices would have been willing to weigh in. I mean, what, I don't know. What do you think, Amy? What, do you think that, you know, this trend is here to stay? I do, because I think that litigants have realized that, aside from the legal fees themselves, which can be substantial, that it's basically costless to go to the Supreme Court. You know, the mm. worst case scenario is that they say no, but there doesn't seem to be any sort of reputational cost or anything like that to doing it. And so I think... Mm. I think it becomes a sort of self-perpetuating problem where people see the opportunity and see other people succeed on the shadow docket. So why not? Why not try? Yeah. There's basically no downside. Right. And we should say that, you know, routinely we do see these applications come up that do seem a little bit more frivolous or not the types of issues that the Supreme Court would typically weigh in on, on the shadow docket. And they often do just get kind of summarily denied by a, a single justice acting as a circuit justice without even being referred to the full court. And, and so that does happen. We, sh- we should say it's not like the Supreme Court is, you know, is intervening in every single, you know, shadow docket disputes. But like you say, okay, I mean, so if a litigant tries and just gets denied by the circuit justice, you know, nothing, you know, nothing venture, nothing gain, like you say. Before we, before we say goodbye, maybe we will just touch briefly on two of the big cases that were argued in the final sitting of the year in the December argument session, 303 Creative and Moore versus Harper. 303 Creative, it, sort of going back to my original question, there wasn't much about it that was a surprise, that there seemed to be five or six justices who were ready to rule in favor of Lori Smith, the website designer who does not want to create custom wedding websites for same-sex couples because of her religious beliefs. The only real question that was left seemed to be the line drawing. You know, does this apply sort of both to allowing people to decline service to same-sex couples, but also to interracial couples or to people with disabilities? Sort of where do you draw the line on that sense? And then in terms of where do you draw the line on whose religious beliefs or you know, moral beliefs count. Yeah, I completely agree with that, Amy. I, I think that line drawing problem is going to be the major complication as the justices write this opinion. You heard a lot of hypotheticals at the oral arguments exploring where that line ought to be drawn. And, and frankly, I, I didn't hear anything satisfying from you know, the the lawyer representing Smith or from any of the justices that sort of pinpointed any doctrinal way to distinguish religious objections to same-sex marriage from, for example, a a hypothetical religious objection to interracial marriage. But I don't think that anyone is going to be willing to write an opinion that opens the door for race-based discrimination in this context, for exemptions, you know, to to discriminate on the basis of race, uh, you know, under um, state anti-discrimination laws, and I think that's that's the real the real challenge. I mean, you know, and frankly, at, at one point, 
you kind of even heard the 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 advocate you know for Smith almost acknowledging that there might not be a clear line, and you know that that's a remarkable position. Uh, you know, and the Supreme Court has sort of hinted in the past, you know, like oh well, race is different. There's language in you know Obergefell, the same-sex marriage decision, you know, saying that. You know, Americans with different views on marriage are entitled to respect, and there's no such language about, you know, people who don't believe in interracial marriage, for example. But nonetheless, as a doctrinal matter, it's difficult to to figure out a way to grant an exemption in one context, but not the other. Yeah, that Justice Alito in particular highlighted that language from Obergefell. And I'm kind of wondering whether that could be where the court sort of focuses, you know, almost mm-hmm. kind of like he did in Dobbs, where, where the opinion says abortion is different from contraception or interracial marriage. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you know, Justice Thomas wrote the concurring opinion in which he suggested that at least for him, it wasn't. And whether the court will write an opinion that sort of points to that language and then we'll be back relitigating this with interracial marriage or disability rights or something else further down the line. Yeah, yeah. And then Moore versus Harper, the independent state legislature theory. Is it a theory or is it a hypothesis? That's what I. <laughs> I guess. I guess we'll. I guess we'll find out next year. It's it's still pretty untested. I mean, I. <laughs> yeah, that was an interesting one. You know, I, again, I, I think there is sort of a a line drawing problem here in in this case too. You know, and I, I know you spoke with you know Rick Hayson about this on on the last episode of the podcast. So I don't you know think we need to go back into the you know the background of the case and everything, but. You certainly got the sense that, you know, there were three justices at oral argument, the three liberal justices who were certainly, you know, who wanted to just reject the theory wholesale. You had maybe three other justices, the three you know, kind of most conservative members of the court, Clarence Thomas, Samuel Alito, and, and Neil Gorsuch, who, who seemed willing to embrace a pretty robust version of the theory. And then you had the chief and Kavanaugh and Barrett who have been described as taking sort of a more middle ground approach, being open to some version of the independent state legislature theory, but not wanting to adopt the most maximalist version, I suppose. In other words, leaving some room for state courts to supervise the decisions that state legislatures make about running federal elections, but retaining the ability of federal courts to ensure that state courts don't go too far in trammeling the robust authority that state legislatures have under the Constitution to run federal elections. But again, I'm not sure how you define what too far is. There were a lot of potential tests Uh, proposed by the various advocates. Again, it's a line drawing problem. I think you're going to see, you know, an opinion that tries to take a middle ground approach, 
but I, I think the test will be how it actually plays out on the ground and how much authority state legislatures have and how much authority, you know, state courts end up having to, um, you know, enforce their state constitutions and apply them to election laws. Yeah, Justice Kagan at the oral argument was clearly concerned that even this so-called middle ground theory would give federal courts too much power, that the standard, although the challengers and North Carolina described it as sort of a very high bar, she clearly seemed to be concerned that it was too malleable a standard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you've certainly seen some commentary from, you know, progressive voting rights activists putting forth the same position. This idea that there really isn't any, you know, quote unquote, middle ground or moderate version of the independent state legislature theory. I have to say, I'm not so sure that's true. I think it depends on what the opinion looks like. But I think that there is a difference between an opinion that says state courts have absolutely no power to enforce their state constitutions against state legislatures, election laws, and an opinion that says state courts do have the power <laughs> to enforce their state constitutions subject to some review by federal courts. I mean, I, I think that actually is a meaningful difference. I, you know, I think that you're right, Amy, that the latter opinion would have the effect of increasing the power of federal courts. And, you know, and that means increasing the power of the Supreme Court, which is why I think that's how the Supreme Court is going to decide this case, because it's going to aggrandize itself and its own power. It's just very interesting because, you know, if that is the outcome in some form, we'll have an, a highly unusual and even extraordinary scenario of the, you, the Supreme Court and federal courts in general having the authority to review state courts' interpretations of their own constitutions, which generally federal courts are not supposed to do. I suppose it would be very good for election law lawyers, because I have to think <laughs> that if you, if you set that standard, that there's going to be a lot of litigation, uh, and it will wind up at the Supreme Court. Yeah, 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 exactly. I, you know, I think... Under any outcome, there's the potential for a lot of litigation, weirdly enough. So I, am, I don't know, maybe that's just <laughs> that's, maybe that's just the legal system we all we all live under. But I, I think what's unclear is where that litigation will occur. Right. Fair enough. Because even even if the Supreme Court endorsed the most fulsome version of the independent state legislature theory you're still going to see challenges in federal court from losing candidates who are going to argue that, you know, on the ground decisions from county officials or election administrators violated state law and thus violated the independent state legislature doctrine. And, you know, they would have a cause of action, presumably, in federal courts, you know, and so I just, I don't know. It's, it's very difficult to play out. Indeed, indeed. So I guess we'll be back here sometime next year talking mm -hmm. about what the court actually did right and what it means. And then we can wait for the 2024 elections. James Ramoser, thank you so much for joining us. Happy to do it. Thanks, Amy. 
that's another episode of SCOTUS Talk. Thanks to Bruce Wessel for writing us to ask about the pace of decisions this term. If you have a question about what's happening at the court, please send us an email at feedback at scotusblog.com or you can leave us a voicemail at 202-596-2906. We'll be taking a short break for the holidays, so we'll see you in 2023.